Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. Welcome back to part two of our episode on the sacred script of matriarchy on the 34 Circe Salon. In this part, Vicki Noble gives a bit of background on the culture of the civilization that used this sacred script. Join Dawn, Sam Alden, and me, Sean Marlon Newcomb, as we talk with Vicki about it. Vicki, could you, uh, again, just for time, just to give the uh, listener an idea, Anatolia Farmers, Old Europe, what time frame are we looking at for the Anatolia Farmers? When did they go into Old Europe? Oh, well, they moved into Old Europe around uh, the beginning of the seventh millennium. Okay. And they, you know, they many stayed in Greece, I'm sure, and but but many. So nine thousand years ago, for the for the yeah. kids playing at home. Yeah, yeah. People <laughs> keeping score. <laughs> Good. And so then, about a thousand years later, some of them moved, started moving up north, and ended up on the Danube. We've talked about that a bit. The, the right. site of Lipinski Veer, one of my favorite uh, places to study, is uh, uh, a predecessor of the later Vincia tradition where the script was really incarnated in a, in a systemic way. Um, and, and everybody understands it as having been religious and that it requires, for understanding, it requires a belief in magical powers of sacred inscriptions. You have to understand that this; these are not, you know, they've called them pottery marks or owner's marks, uh, the very early ones. And uh, you just have to give that up. It's not about accounting. It's not an accounting system like mm. and, and the hieroglyphics uh, tended to be. Um, it's not used that way. It's it's uh, it's more expressive, and it uh, has to do with uh, you know one one uh, Harold Harmon and Marler Joan Marler say the script had a unique communicative function. It served human beings to commune with spirits for ritual. So these are people who believed that uh, there were there was magical work being done through these uh, consistent, organized uh, rituals over the course of the seasonal cycle and the the agrarian year, because these are farmers. But of course, right. come from the Paleolithic before they were farmers. So we can't only latch on to that. Uh, people all over the world, even in equatorial places and places where they don't have seasons, still follow the eight-point uh, calendar cycle that we find at Lipinski Veer and at other uh, many, many other places. I mean, Caranovo, they were uh, the the places were laid out like mandalas, as if they're in Tibet, you know. Right, right. And and if you have a matriarchal society, and one of the um, one of the markers of a matriarchal society, as you have said before, is a sense of uh, an economic mutuality, reciprocity, the gift economy type of idea, then you don't need language to keep accounting for you, exactly. because 
you give freely and there's yeah. no one for you, one for me mentality to it. Well, that's beautiful, Don. That's right. It was whatever possessions they owned or uh, whatever um, surplus agricultural products they had at the end of a harvest, that was all owned in common, of course. Right. And, right. and we think it was... Uh, you know, overseen and processed by the priestesses and that it was a kind of temple work um, and that the sharing, the sort of Marxist sharing of, of, of these uh, products being distributed equally to everyone uh, in need, um, that that is at the core of the gift economy and that's certainly at the core of these very egalitarian early systems. Right. Vicki, could you just explain the eight-point calendar to people again? Uh, we talked about it on the old Europe episode, but it's good to just remind those listening. Yeah. Well, it, again, <clears throat> kind of hard to do without a picture, but let me try to make a picture for you. We're gonna get. To, we're gonna have moving pictures soon. We're gonna add sound to our movies, and then we're gonna have moving pictures. It'll be really great. Okay. So the matriarchy channel is coming. <laughs> Good. I love that. Instead of imagining uh, calendars that we look at, a wall calendar or something, you know, with the days of the month, <clears throat> we're looking at a circle. And the circle uh, has, uh, it uh, starts, it's the eight phases of the moon. So we begin with the new moon when uh, really there's no moon in the sky, it's dark. And then the crescent and the first quarter and the gibbous moon and finally the full moon which is the the uh you know the the double goddess to the new moon it's mm -hmm. the farthest expression of the light and the energy and then there begins the decrease and we call that the disseminating phase and the last quarter and finally the balsamic phase so i think a lot of people are vaguely familiar with those moon phases and we experience them of course every month um, as the moon makes its uh, journey away from the sun and back to the sun back again mm -hmm. and that was celebrated and honored i i take it to be uh, related very primordially to a woman's menstrual cycle and to the whole community of women bleeding together and ovulating together at these opposite points in the lunar cycle. And the right. reason I take that to be so important to humans is that we're the only species that has a menstruation cycle like that, a bipolar menstruation cycle. And uh, uh, the other primates that are very close with us, the bonobos and the chimps, do not have that cycle. They have, uh, they have estrus still they show a little blood and a swelling and everything when when the female is fertile uh, and so it's a kind of a uh, it's a come hither you know for the male to uh, procreate the female human cycle is utterly different because we ovulate when we're not bleeding and we bleed when we're not ovulating and right. and so that that inside, and then it also synchronizes with the moon. That's the really magical, kind of um, miraculous part 
of our human evolution is that that menstrual cycle for women is synchronized with the cycles of the moon. So the community of women uh, are having a collective experience. And so the rituals that were developed early on to uh, celebrate and honor the dark moon and then the full moon, those rituals would have been collectively expressed in the bodies of all the women, all the adult women in the community. And that was, of course, perceived as a miracle of life on earth and a miracle of the human being. And the rituals, I'm sure, were participated in by all people in the community, men, women, and children. So it's, it's like women's mysteries are at the core of our earliest religion. And that great mother figure that we see in the Paleolithic and later uh, is it's the, the ancestral force in that matriline so that, you know, every mother passes on that, uh, that lore to her daughter who passes it on to her daughter. We have all those eggs, you know, we're born with all of the eggs we're ever going to have. And um, right. it's, it's amazing. The whole thing is so miraculous and it has been so devalued and even demonized in, mm-hmm. in Western culture uh, so that we don't talk about it. You know, yeah, yeah. People are grossed out when you talk about your menstrual cycle in our culture. Yeah, and they're a little bit that way about the female figurines with all the signs and symbols written on the bodies of those women. Um, it's it's well, it's all there. I mean, for men, I can tell you, speaking on behalf of the male part of humanity, um, <laughs> it, it's true. I mean, it's the you're kind of the mindset that is created in culture is the this is one, this is alien. So even as you're talking about it, Vicky, Vicky and I'm listening to it. It's interesting because I'm, you know, coming at it, it's, it is a place of mystery. And so you can imagine, particularly 19th century, especially scholars un, unearthing these sorts of things, it wouldn't even be on their radar. Yeah. This would be something that would just, you know, you might as well be talking about goblins and, you know, for the 19th century or aliens for, you know, modern men. So in a certain um, way, Sean, in a certain way, but also there were these Victorian scholars like Bachofen. And Grifo, the Grifo wrote three volumes called The Mothers, and Bachofen wrote a book called Mother Right. Mutu. Can we get their names again? Say their names again. So uh, we have Bachofen. Bachofen, uh, I think Jakob Bachofen, and uh, Grifo. Can't think of his first name. Sorry, but it's B R I F F A U L T, and his oh, okay. books are called The Mothers. He was anthropological, and they're filled with rich anthropological details from around the world, and uh, and Bachofen also. But uh, he was more um, he was really dealing with more the he was de- dealing with things like angles and the structure of the human family and things like that. Mm-hmm. So some were aware, but again, by and large, it would be something that's not and also- that would have to be reminded or shown in some sense. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's funny because everything Vicky said, I'm over here just nodding along because to <laughs> me, this seems so intuitive and so obvious because it is the cycle of my life. Yes, that's right. right. We live inside of it. And, you know, one of the things I'm very aware of when I'm reading all the mostly male 
academics who are writing about all these different places I'm interested in and and all the archaeology. It isn't all men, but it's mostly men. And and a lot of the women are kind of male identified. And so you don't very often get a woman who's coming out of a real female experience when she talks about the the cultures that she's looking at. And of course, Gimbutas did more than that. She didn't just speak from her experience as a woman, uh, but she is a woman. She was a woman who had children, so she did know the experience of birthing, and she made that central to what she was uh, interpreting. Um, she never mentioned menstruation, interestingly enough. She, huh. she only spoke of regeneration, death, life, and regeneration, life, death, and re- regeneration, birth, death, yeah. and regeneration. Um, but anyway, uh, she certainly also identified as European, and she had a background of being raised in Lithuania where all of these things were still and still are today present in a person's uh, environment. You know, the farmers were still kissing the earth in the morning to say hello to Mother Earth. I mean, you know, she lived, she grew up in that that context. And so she identified with what she was seeing in the old European material. And I often feel the way that I, I'm, uh, I get upset at the way the men kind of discount and ignore and dismiss and aren't interested in what they consider a kind of triviality of the uh, female figurines or the uh, the domestic cars and things like that. But I'm a woman, and I know that I'm identifying with the women. And I I felt that especially when the DNA material came out about the Indo-European males going into old Europe around 3000 BCE and basically wiping out the male farmer DNA from yeah. old Europe. And then breeding with the women, you know, it was, I, I, the, the men talk about it in their work, even male scholars, I really, really uh, enjoy reading and uh, appreciate and respect for their scholarly intelligence. Even they are just so detached that they, when they talk about things like that, they talk about, you know, raiding and trading. They talk about, they kind of like, they're just, they're not feeling it. Yeah, and yeah, they, it's, say, it's, they, it's, they say things like they mated with the, you know, it's like yeah. no, they didn't mate. No, they didn't. Said, yeah, they didn't. This was not. This was not a mutual coming together here. They did not yeah. marry them. That is not what went on. It was not. Yeah. Romantic. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I find it. I find it really. You know, it's funny. I have a similar reaction to you, actually, Vicky, to that whole description of that Yamnaya conquest because it is. To me, I still think it's central to the Western psyche. I do. That occurrence yep. just, you, you end up with this rupturing of this matriarchy. You can still, through all the millennia, see the undercurrent of these matriarchal concepts and mindsets in the culture coexisting with this grafted on really brutal patriarchy on top of it. Mm-hmm. And we live in a modern era where it's not brutal anymore. And so I end up having discussions with people who essentially say, you know, thing, you know, everybody's got it great, you know, now. So it's, you know, what, you know, how dare you 
you know, impugn these, these warrior men. And it's like, well, besides the fact that we can argue a lot about the nature of what we exist in at this particular moment, just the fact that you had this very specific type of brutal conquest that undid an entire civilization and erased it. Yeah. Not just destroyed it, yeah. erased it and, and then took it by, so to speak, to, you know, like you were saying, Don, they'll call it mating, but took it by force. By to force. Yeah. And I'm going to take issue with the fact that, you know, we, we no longer do things that way. And yet, if you ask a room full of women who's been sexually assaulted or raped, I guarantee you that at least 99% of the women in that room will raise their hands. So this is still the, mm. the, the violence and the forcefulness of, of taking over the mother and the mother culture and the matriarchy is still very, very present in and our yeah. Western having, society. Yeah, having normalized it, Yes, we don't usually have to talk about it. It just right. the way it is. You know, we it's don't just talk the way about it is. perpetrators. We talk about an epidemic of domestic violence. We talk about an epidemic of rape. We don't talk about well, who's doing it. Right, we, right. We talk about it as if it's some strange uh, force that we can't do anything about like a virus (laughs) right right yeah like a pandemic yeah yeah yeah. um and i'm just going to circle back quickly um to talk about you know marie gambutis and and bringing this sort of uh importance of matriarchy and uh the the ordinary events the rhythm of a woman's life bringing that to the fore and talking about that as not only something central to the culture, but something with spiritual significance is for women today in this culture who are existing in a place where every contribution that a woman makes is is denigrated and seen as less than, to be able to hear that kind of scholarship is is a revelation. It is a recognition. It is being seen in a way that, that women are not used to being seen and being valued in a way that women are not used to being valued um, in Western culture today. And so I, I think it is vital um, that we, that we, that we amplify this voice. Uh Uh-huh. Well, you know, that's, of course, the, it was the explosion of that, uh, um, that kind of literature in the very early 70s. I mean, a woman called Elizabeth Gould Davis wrote a book called The First Sex, and it was, it was volcanic, you know, and, it, and out of that and, uh, came the goddess movement, essentially. Uh, because we woke up to exactly what you're saying. Like, wow, women were in the leadership roles here. Women are at the center. You know, uh, the female body is revered and, uh, and uh, honored and ceremonialized. And women's functions, women's so-called, you know, biological functions are actually deified. 
in mm. these ancient yeah. cultures. So yes, it was so revelatory and it was so, and maybe it was just the moment, you know, of the 1970s and what was happening in the culture anyway. But mm-hmm. for, for those of us who became aware of that material uh, and woke up to it at that time, that's what started the entire women's spirituality movement, the goddess movement. And, you know, Maria Gimbutas, of course, was a scientist. She wasn't part of that in any way until after her books began to come out. And we started to find her and have her speak at events and so on. And, oh, my gosh, you know, it was amazing for her because we were trying to sort of reclaim or uh, revision, resurrect, you know, what had gone before in our own lives in, in, you know, I was in my early 20s. It was uh, it was phenomenal. Right, right. And we came together and created all the work that we created for the last 40 years. And, and that, uh, that was some, it was a community that Maria Gimbutas felt resonant with and was invited into and who, right. uh, you know, received that invitation fully and joined. Right. And so right. uh, that the scholars also hate that. The epic- right. I should say they don't like that. You know, they they make it seem as if she had a feminist agenda, but she certainly did not. She had right. Right. It's just that the the feminists were open to believing what she said, as opposed to the traditional male scholarship that was not did not have that openness. And we grabbed onto it and we, you know, we made it like the basis, the foundation uh, for our our work and our the scholarship that would follow from her work. And uh, there's some way that that is used against her and against us. Well, it's interesting because you, you know, pointed out earlier that there were a lot of male identified women in the scholarly circles. And I see two things that occur. One, you have first this male identification, which I think is a function simply of how do you survive and have a flourishing career in academia? You have to do it in such a way that you are affirming the standard line. So yeah, yeah. Were, in order to be considered legitimate, you have to go in order to be taken with, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not yeah. only that, you can't even get into a PhD program in archaeology if you have the slightest interest in Gimbutas. Mm. It's it was amazing to watch. There were two, I think it was 2018, there were two particular discussions held at the Getty on matriarchy within a year of each other. Oh. Uh, well, <laughs> this is the great thing. You'll, you'll enjoy this, Vicki. So the first one we tried to go to, and it was over, they, they didn't realize it would be so popular. It was uh, sold out. It was overbooked. And I couldn't get into the main. It's a beautiful place, the Getty. It's, um, there's the Getty Villa, which is beautiful and out off you know, Malibu and the ocean. And over the Pacific Ocean looks like a Roman villa. Then there's the Getty uh, that has... Uh, little further up in the mountains which has a more extensive collection but um but the getty villa is where we went and so we tried to get in and so i couldn't watch i had to watch it online basically the next day they recorded it and what i found interesting about that was it was all women on the panel and one woman very emphatically told the audience 
There is no matriarchy. There never was a matriarchy that we found. Maybe we'll have to look at the jungle somewhere, but there's no matriarchy, okay? <laughs> and she said it with such de, you know, decisive condescension, uh-huh. like you are out of your mind if you even think to disagree with this. And again, it was coming from that standpoint of, look, I'm a serious scholar. We're all serious scholars here. And no serious scholar thinks that there was ever a time when women a women-centric civilization existed. Let's be real. Okay, folks? Well, then, insert raspberry sound right here. Yeah, it was... uh, I was screaming at my computer, not that anyone could hear me. But so that was... So there was that. And then there was another uh, panel about a year later, which looked at, again, I'm trying to remember, it wasn't specific... That second one wasn't specifically about matriarchy, but I think it was mainly about... In the, in the ancient world, women in power in the ancient world. And most of the discussion came down to women really didn't have power in the ancient world unless they were prostitutes. So it was a really good year of matriarchal discussion. <laughs> well, you know, the, the problem is in the semantics uh, and, and it just stays stuck. Uh, it's an American problem um, because the, in Europe, the matriarchal studies international matriarchal studies uh, movement was born out of uh, Germany from Heide Guttner Abendroth. I've talked about her before. And that, uh, you know, you can can use that to understand that uh, in Europe, they're not so picky about the word. They it's an old word for them. Bachhofen and Briefold and even uh, Eric Neumann, you know, were all European. And uh, they all wrote about the great mother and they all wrote about the, they all wrote about matriarchy, mother right, mother at the beginning. Um, So it's something uh, particularly American. I suppose it's particularly Protestant because we aren't Catholic for the most part and don't have Mary anymore. And the mm-hmm. Europeans still kind of do, you know. Well, well, I do, Vicky, but I'm just yeah, saying. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, you're, you're in the minority here, and uh, and the discourse uh, has has been prejudiced against Catholicism ever since the Protestant Revolution, you know. So mm-hmm. we we uh, we really are a, a Protestant nation in some deep way. Thank you for joining us on the 34 Circe Salon. Part 3, we discuss the specific symbols used in the script. 